0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In his new book, writer and scholar Clint Smith takes a hard look at the ways America presents a distorted history of slavery. He also investigates how those flawed stories are passed from generation to generation and why they persist.
1: How we understand the history of slavery is a reflection of the communities we grew up in, the families we're a part of, the lineages we carry. As a result, we have a public memory around this history, that part of our history, that is very different in many different places.
0: Smith talks about how seeing Confederate monuments coming down in New Orleans, his hometown, made him think about what those symbols mean and how growing up among them impacts people. He began visiting historical sites like Monticello and a Confederate cemetery and turned those observations and interviews into his book, How the Word is Passed*. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Winter Words Conversation Series held by Aspen Words. Clint Smith is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a poet and former teacher. He has a Ph.D. in education and brings his training as both a scholar and a poet to how the word is passed, which is written with careful attention to prose and facts. The book is a number one New York Times bestseller and winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction. Smith is interviewed about his book by James Merle Thomas, the director of the Resnick Center for Herbert Bayer Studies at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held on March 15th. Here's Smith. In
1: 2017, I was watching several Confederate statues come down in my hometown in New Orleans, statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee. And I was watching these statues come down and I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city In which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people and what are the implications of that what does it mean that to get to school i had to go down robert e lee boulevard to get to the grocery store i had to go down jefferson davis parkway that my middle school was named after a leader of the confederacy that my parents still live on a street today named after someone who owned over 150 enslaved people because the thing is we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols they are reflective of the stories that people tell And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry and those narratives shape public policy and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives and that's not to say that taking down a 60-foot tall statue of robert e lee is going to suddenly erase the racial wealth gap but it does help us recognize the sort of ecosystem of ideas an ecosystem of stories and narratives that give us an understanding of american history and help us better understand the way that certain communities have been disproportionately harmed throughout American history. So I was looking around New Orleans and I was thinking about something my old professor said, a historian named Walter Johnson at Harvard University and he wrote this book Soul by Soul, which is about the history of chattel slavery in New Orleans and he says about New Orleans, the whole city is a memorial to slavery. It's in the roads enslaved people paved, it's in the buildings enslaved people constructed, it's in the levees enslaved people built, it's in the soil enslaved people are buried in. And I started looking around New Orleans and thinking about well, what are the places or who are the people who are telling this story that isn't the story that i was told growing up i grew up in new orleans was once the largest slave market and the most profitable and busiest slave market in the country and yet my own education around the history of slavery in new orleans and across the country generally i came to realize was in no way commensurate with the actual impact and legacy that it has had on this country and so i started thinking about what it looked like in new orleans and ultimately sort of broadened it out to think about, well, how does what does this look like in different cities, in different neighborhoods, in different uh, museums, memorials, monuments, and how are they telling the story of slavery? Are they doing it honestly? Are they um, running from it, or are they sort of doing something in between? And it brought me on this four- or five-year journey uh, in which I traveled to dozens of places across the country uh, and ultimately across the ocean, and then wrote about um, nine of them, uh, if you include the prologue and epilogue. And, you know, with with the hope that the different places would represent the sort of heterogeneity of public memory, right? The way that how we understand the history of slavery is a reflection of the communities we grew up in, the families we're a part of, the lineages we carry. Um, and that, as a result, we have a public memory around this history, that part of our history, that is... Uh, very different in many different places. I, I love thinking
2: about public memory as a very pointed response to history, right? Mm. With a capital H. I mean, mm. the, it's fraught, I think, in so many ways. And, and one of, the, one of the, the beautiful sort of continual lessons that one learns through the book is that the history is far from neutral, right? And that it, that it is so sort of impacted with, with habits and bias and the way that it is past and we'll come to that in a minute but i want to linger on the sites you know and it, 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 there's this wonderful sort of um, recitation you just gave of uh, the soil um, um, the levees etc cetera, etc cetera, on through the series of sites that you ultimately selected right and these range from um, historic plantations that now function as everything from um, historical sites of historical memory to recreation, you know the, the insanity of you know hosting weddings and plantations to uh, the modern prison system mm. on and on and on and on, uh, something you just said, I think is really fascinating. Um, you said that over the course of several years, you ultimately visited dozens of sites mm. and in some ways they kind of comprise a constellation mm. right that make up this this network, this history. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Mm. In other words, I can imagine that it was tempting i mean I would imagine it was hard to winnow that down. Yeah. You know Can you talk a little bit about what what that process looked like as a writer, as a researcher, and then how you thinned that down and said, "Okay, this stays in mm. and what didn't and then as a kind of follow up, what didn't make the cut? Are you willing to share that?
1: Yeah, I mean there's you know there are so many the thing that I loved about a book like this is that it kind of tells the book tells you where it wants to go so I think you know you write a non-fiction proposal and you have a sample chapter um, and you have you know you lay out like I'm going to go to these dozen places um, and then when you start writing it the book reveals that it has a very different idea of what it wants to be in mind so for example I thought I was going to write a chapter on uh Civil War battlefields I was going to write a chapter on the siege the battlefield upon which the, the siege of Petersburg toward the end of the Civil War took place. So I went to Petersburg, Virginia, and I went to the National, uh, the national Park where they have that um, history documented. I was talking to a national park ranger, and we were having a conversation. I was telling him about this project, and he was like, oh, you should really go um, to this Confederate cemetery down the road. In my personal capacity, there is no context in which I would go just spend the day at a Confederate cemetery. Um, as a writer, it felt, I felt compelled to go see what this was all about. And so I went to the Confederate Cemetery, um, and for those who have read the book, it's the Blandford Cemetery, and got this tour, this sort of bizarre tour, um, about the the chapel that was at the center of the cemetery. And he was having conversations, he was talking about the, these. there were these beautiful, incredible stained glass windows that were in the chapel that sat on the uh the land of the at the center of the cemetery and this is land where the remains of thirty thousand confederate soldiers are buried it's one of the largest confederate cemeteries in the country and he didn't say the word confederacy or confederates once and it was so strange to me because it was clear that this place was created as an homage to the fallen soldiers of the confederacy i mean it literally says it on the windows but he talked about everything else except that and so then i went into the visiting room To or the the sort of visiting center after the tour, and the woman who's the director was, you know, I was we were having conversations. I was trying to get a sense of like, why aren't we talking about the thing that is most central to this space? And on the on the desk was a flyer for a Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day event, Um, and I I looked down and I saw it. And she like immediately put her hand over it. She slammed her hand down on the counter and she tried to flip it over. And she was like, I don't know, I, I don't know what that's about. And I was like, you the, you're the director. How did what are this, you talking how about? How, how did this get here? How did this get here? And so in that moment, I was like, again, in my personal capacity, I would never be inclined to go say, well, I have to go spend the day with the Sons of Confederate veterans and like see what that's about. But as a writer, as a journalist, it was clear that that's where the story was pulling me. And so then I, with the permission of my wife, um, I went to spend the day with the Sons of Confederate veterans. Um, and and it was, I mean, and that chapter ended up being, for me is, I can't imagine the book without it, right? I can't, I mean, part of what I learned when I went to Blanford was the way that the contemporary, the, the lost cause sort of manifests itself in a contemporary way, right? Where for so many people, history is not about primary source documents or empirical evidence, it is a story that they are told. And it's a story that they tell, it's an heirloom that's passed down across generations. It's something where loyalty takes precedence over truth and having conversations with these different people who were members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and gaining a deeper insight into how for them, this is the story of the lost cause, the story of how the Civil War was not about slavery, but was in fact about you know, is the war of Northern aggression, it was about protecting Southern culture, protecting Southern land, protecting their families, is a reflection of stories that they have been told by their parents and their grandfathers and their grandmothers, and it's the same stories that they tell. Uh, and so it's it's difficult for them to sort of uh, pull themselves or untether themselves from these stories because the stories are so central to their understandings of themselves.
2: That's And in a lot of ways, that's the inverse of that this sort of uh affirmational way when you say how the word is passed, mm. right? And it, well, I want to get into to word and passage in a yeah. minute, but there's another word you just tossed in there that I think is worthy. I want to unpack it for a minute. And that was you just mentioned kind of empirical evidence. And um for those uh if you know, forgive me for those who haven't read the book yet, and I know spoilers or anything, uh but i would I would put forward that, in addition to your own authorial voice, it seems like there are really two there are two kind of light motifs, like two voices. Um, and maybe it's another way to say that is that you have to kind of wear two different hats mm. and one and I, I love when we were talking earlier about you know, your engagement with the fields of education and sociology um, and thinking about the social sciences. It seems like part of the book you really need to wear the hat of a cultural anthropologist. And those voices come out in the interactions, right, in the, the you, you can't make this up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where the, the the power of some of that nonfiction comes from. The other leitmotif though, um, is precisely in what we might call the historical record and in the evidentiary. And I'm thinking specifically of the Slave Narrative Project mm-hmm. and the FWP mm-hmm. and this moment in the 1930s, when, as a part of the WPA, uh, narratives were recorded in a kind of ethnographic way, right. and could th- that to me just bowled me over? Mm. Like, not only as a researcher, but then as someone who really loves prose, mm. um, describe for us, kind of unpack that a little bit. Maybe for the sake of this audience, like, g- give the, the the Wikipedia on what that project even was—the Federal Writers' Yeah—and like how that came to be. An important voice and then I think really importantly it's not like you just take it for what it is Mm -hmm. because it's a it's a complex
1: yeah
2: it's a complex recording system maybe
1: yeah so the federal writers project was part of FDR's New Deal um, and it was a part of a a sort of larger oral history initiative um, that was taking place between 1936 and 1938 and so part of what they did was task Writers and journalists, and uh, largely, people, you know, newspaper folks who were out of work, um, and tasked them with going to different parts of the American South, largely, and recording the the oral histories of formerly enslaved people. So this is the late '30s, which means you're mostly recording the histories of people who were children um, at the end of slavery and children when um, the Thirteenth Amendment passed, and so. These, it's a really remarkable and, and historically underutilized resource. And it's, you know, there's 2,300 interviews. Um, and for me, it's they're incredibly important in part because growing up, the sort of singular narratives around slavery that I got were Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, if you're lucky, Alato Equiano, um, uh, Harriet Jacobs. And a lot of these folks who, who went on to become great abolitionists, they went on to um, they wrote these these incredible books or had incredible books written about them. And, you know, I I love Frederick Douglass more than anybody, right? Like I, I've read pretty much everything that Douglass has ever written. But I'm also acutely aware of the fact that Frederick Douglass's experience as an enslaved person is not reflective of the experiences of the four million other enslaved people. Like he was such a, the, the world, the universe doesn't make a lot of people like Frederick Douglass. He is a sort of singular person and so when we read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass we are getting insight into some aspects of the barbarity of slavery and and a lot of insights into how remarkable of a human he was but it it is not giving us uh, a full sense of the sort of uh, complexities of slavery that were not the realities for for people outside of his context I mean just for example he uh, was enslaved in Maryland. And Maryland was a border state, right? So when he escaped from slavery, um, he disguised himself as a sailor and got on a train to New York. You know, that looks very different if you're enslaved in Georgia. If you're enslaved in Alabama, if you're enslaved in Louisiana, um he went on to become one of the most important writers and orders of our time. Most enslaved people were did not know how to read and write. And so a lot of these stories are focusing, I, I appreciate them most because they focus on, the specific nature of like what it meant to be, what it meant to be like an ordinary person who was enslaved, and for me, it's those moments in the slave narratives where it pushes us to reconceptualize what resistance looked like, or what um, what it meant to assert one's agency or humanity in the context of slavery. So you know, it's it's about the kids who go to the creek and like are skipping rocks after they're done, you know, in the fields. It's about the the two people who are falling in love under under poplar trees and, you know, s- sitting under the shade of the tree, holding hands, you know, trying to escape from uh, the, the work that they have that day. It's about, you know, the community of enslaved people on a Saturday night after they finish their work, like singing and laughing and dancing together. It's those moments where you you have people who are reclaiming a sense of, Agency, a sense of humanity in the face of a set of circumstances that are that are just unfathomable for many of us, right? To 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 center their own personhood um, in ways that are as important as the stories of those, you know, of famous slave rebellions or people who escaped. And so, there's a lot of value in reading the stories uh, and testimonies of ordinary enslaved folks because. Most of us are ordinary people, right? And and it's a, it gives us a sense of like how might we try to try to exist and try to to be people and and claim a, uh, full lives for ourselves in the midst of this like unrelenting institution. To your point, they are also not perfect, right? And part of the issue is that they are uh, a lot of the people who were do, conducting the interviews themselves were racist and had their own caricatures and own stereotypes and own ideas of who black people were and so in a lot of the transcriptions they're using like a sort of overly emphasized uh, a black dialect um, that it might not necessarily be reflective of how the person actually spoke Um, they are also framing questions in ways that uh, might elicit honestly just elicit fear from a lot of the folks right i mean because you have to understand the context like if you're an elderly black person in 1930s and somebody who says they represent the government shows up on your porch and is like, we want to ask you some questions, yeah. y- you might not necessarily be as forthcoming as you would to to anybody else, right? There was a lot of things that people didn't know. So so there are limitations to to the documents because of the, the racist sort of impositions and, and stereotypes that so many of the interviewers were, you know, carried themselves. And also because of the reticence that many of the people who were being interviewed had to you know, some random white person from the government showing up at their door and asking them these questions about their childhood. Uh, but even with a recognition of the limitations, I think it's still a really important resource alongside so many of the uh, oral histories that were collected by a lot of the students at historically black colleges and universities um, in the 19th century. Uh, or in the or in the early twentieth century, that uh, that really I think scholars are only now, over the course of the last decade or so, right. beginning to sort of excavate and explore to give us a more to give us a fuller and more expansive understanding of what slavery was outside of the context of these sort of famous slave narratives that we've relied on for a long time.
2: I, I re- immediately thought of Sadie Hartman, and mm-hmm. you know someone you assigned every class as yeah. part of that, and she's she's written so beautifully on on the same on the same topic. Um, can I ask you to kind of push those two things together? Mm. This amazing um, writerly, uh, almost anthropological, you know, way. Where, you know, you kind of dissociate yourself. In mm. a way. You say, you know, as a person, I'm not going to go mm. to the sons of the Confederacy. Yeah. As a writer, I'm going to go, mm. right? And then you have, you know, what I envision to be a kind of years long. Engagement with you know the rare books room in the Library mm-hmm. of Congress. I mean, that's it's you have to go into that with as much purpose. Right. I want to. I, I would love to hear you talk about what what a writing is for you. Like, what is what does it mean when you sit? Are you uh you know do you? I know you have a family. Do you do you get up at six in the morning and put on a pot of coffee and <laughs> and and think about those two voices and weave them together? Like, I'd love to kind of hear how that how that process is
1: i wish it was that romantic and elegant no it's uh at six in the morning there is i am uh i'm praying that my child stays in his room um and, and i was like well how many like wild kratz audio can he can i play that will like keep him like give me another 30 minutes um you, you know so for me we i wrote this book at the same time as my wife and i began to have a family um and so, it was not. You know, I think I was quickly disabused of the idea that I would have long stretches of of time and like hot coffee and yeah. and hot tea and the sun hitting you just so. And uh, maybe I'd do some yoga before. It was. <laughs> I, it was not. I'll say, grad school writing is very different from real world writing. Exactly, which is very fun. Exactly, no, it's good. Um, it gives you a false sense of of what your writing life will look like. And so. Uh, no, it was. I mean, I, uh, a mentor and, and friend of mine, Imani Perry, um, who's a remarkable, prolific scholar at Princeton. Um, we had lunch one day. I think only not long after I had kids, and I was like, "It's just so hard to find time to write." And she was just like, "You just have to write like whenever you can." And I was like, "I do try to write." And she was like, "No, like whenever you can. How like that? Do you so basically? I started bringing um, a laptop." with me everywhere and so if my kid if we're driving along you know i pick my kids up from uh, camp or from school or from wherever and they or if we're like leaving the zoo and they fall asleep in the back of the car then we're pulling over to a starbucks and i'm seeing how close i can get to the wi-fi at the starbucks and i'm like sitting there and so like you get 20 minutes there you get 20 minutes during episodes of daniel tiger you get an hour during nap time you get you know a lot there are photos where my my uh, youngest uh, baby girl is like, um, I forgot what the rap is called, but like the the wrap that you put around your no, you one, one of those yarns so like, yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. and i 'm just like, I mean this was my disposition for like, <laughs> <It's> like this <laughs> is just how I moved for like two years. I just was kind of kind of bouncing around like this because that 's the only way they would fall asleep and i I would just create a standing desk kind of wherever I could, and I was just pile a bunch of books if, if she fell asleep on my chest. I was like, this is where we 're working today um, and so so it really was written in 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 chunks in that way, in not you know a, a paragraph or two at a time, and um, you know it. I think it helped me because I I'm not the sort of writer that that needs like a perfect setting or or even necessarily a routine to write um, to write to write. Uh, and and for me, especially for this book, what I wanted was to write a a book of history that felt like a novel. Like I for me, it was really. Ultimately, people ask me who the audience for this book was, and it's the 16-year-old version of me, right? Mm. And I wanted to write the sort of book that I felt like I needed on a personal level that would have explained why my city, my state, my country looked the way that it did. And also a book that felt accessible and felt um, enjoyable to read to the extent that the subject matter can be enjoyable. And so you know, I, I think what I learned from being a poet more than anything is to pay attention and so for me, I love, like, I love exposition. I love scene setting. Um, my my wife, who was my first editor, and, and my editor also had to, they had to, like, pare my back, people always talk about, they're like, wow, the descriptions are so beautiful and extended and literary. And I was like, I, in the original draft, I was talking about that tree for three pages. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and she'd be like, that's, that's, two and a half pages too long. Um,
2: It was like 1,800 words on freckled rain. Right, right? it was just like, how many
1: different ways can we describe the way the rain has hit the pavement? And I I just, I love that stuff. I mean, I love it in my poetry, I love it in the novels I read, and I wanted to create a sort of cinematic experience for the reader. Like I wanted the reader to truly feel like they were on, not only this intellectual journey with me, but also on this, you know this journey of what I was seeing because the conceit is that I'm going to different places, yeah. and so for me it was really important to paint the, a picture of those places and the people that I was encountering there um, as clearly and as as much detail as possible.
2: You're, you're looking at my notes. I said I said you paint a picture. That's a, and and I, you know, as as an art historian, as as a scholar who's mostly engaged with visual art, um, it, there's something fundamentally visual about the way that. That, that this book, and certainly your poetry, also works. Um, I can't help but think of Teju Cole. Mm. I cannot help but think yep. of um, Derek Walcott's yeah. reportage, which yeah. is really, really visual and here. I mean,
1: Open City is like oh, a fundamental Open text City, for me. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Um, I also think about Sabald, you know, mm. someone who can yeah. take a snapshot and turn that into a world. And so a question I always, always ask when I have, you know, a, you know sort of a, a literary hero or thinker in front of me is, what were you reading in other words are you mm. willing to give up the the cheat sheet syllabus to the <laughs> audience you know what you know what what are some of those north stars for you who who are some of those forces yeah
1: i mean it kind of it depends on the genre um i mean in the context i, I you know there's the sort of heroes of narrative non-fiction i mean i think about isabel Wilkerson's the warmth of other Suns, which is you know just a, one of the most important books i've ever read and and just a a true masterclass of of narrative nonfiction. Uh, Patrick Radden Keefe. I mean, re- most recently, Empire, Pain. Empire, but, Pain. Sure. Um, Say Nothing was how I was introduced to him. And another sort of master of narrative nonfiction. Just like really taking, you know, people who can take, you know, generations worth of archives, thousands of of legal documents, and turn it into to a story like a thriller. Turn it into something that makes you really invested in in the people. Um, novelists that I'm I always think about and that I was reading um Jhumpa Lahiri, mm. uh Mosin Hamid, I think Exit West is like one of the best novels yeah. of the past yeah. decade. Um I love uh Ya Jesse. When I first imagined this project, I was thinking of like what would a nonfiction version of Homegoing look like. Mm-hmm. Um I think about um Katie Kamura Katamura. Katamura um, I think about uh, obviously Toni Morrison, um, who's the sort of you know the, the North Star for so many of us, yeah. And you know, poets. I feel lucky that so many of my the, my favorite poets are also my friends. You know, so yeah. I think about people like Elizabeth Acevedo, Safia Hilu, Eve Ewing, Hanif Abdurraqib, um, Denez Smith, uh, people who who I think represent a generation of writers who who reject the the false dichotomy between the page and stage and who have moved really elegantly mm. across genre and across medium and who have you know started out in you know doing like me like at slam uh, poetry slams and open mics at sure. bars and um, cafes where like people were more interested in getting their coffee than like listening to what we had to say but that's how we that's how we came up that's how we were trained in, in so many ways as as writers and I, it's it's so thrilling to see their success. Um, in the in the sort of larger book world, um, and to uh, in, and a recognition that for all of us, I think, you know, w- there's a clear sense that like a book like How the Word Is Passed yeah. would never have been possible without the slam poetry community that I had in Washington D.C. Without those years that I spent like going to open mic nights basically every single night. Um, that I could and, and reading poems in front of my students. I was a high school English teacher and a lot of times I would read poems in front of my students and teenagers are very honest. Um,
2: we have a bunch in here. Yeah, yeah I it's mean, I would,
1: I would show up and I'd be like, I got some new heat and they'd be like, all right, Smith, let's <laughs> hear it. And I'd be like, I do the poem and they'd be like, that's not, <laughs> that's not it, that's not it, that's not the one. And then they'll also tell you when it's, they'll tell you when it's good, but like, like they were my first audiences, they were my first editors, right? And, and I think it is impossible for me to imagine that my career would have been anything without um, those spaces. Uh. High schoolers in the room, and
2: really anyone, you're going to go to the tape because that that reading list we just gave. I think we have the next season of Aspen Words figured out <laughs> there. That's an amazing um, list. I had Greg Tate to that too, just only because mm. of music, like thinking yeah. about criticism in that early yeah. '90s moment. Absolutely. So you just touched on a, a couple of amazing things that I that I wanted to linger on. One is the you know the amazing um, poetry presence within the district, mm. which is foundational. Seminal. Mm-hmm. I also think about. Um, how that intersects with music that's happening in and around Howard at the mm. same time. There's that scene. There's your your uh, years in the trenches. I mean, f- like frontline teaching in mm. PG County. So I'm thinking about your background in poetry, I'm thinking about, how have those other sources, you just talked a little about poetry, how did, how, did, how did teaching and how did your years in a classroom come to bear on, you know, how you see yourself today as a, you know, I mean, you're you're a, a widely celebrated public intellectual, mm. but you, you really have roots in that in that intimate setting of something like the classroom. Yeah. How does that, for example, kind of weigh in on your thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean, similar to the, the spoken word and um, slam poetry scene. I mean, it is, it is absolutely clear to me that, but for my years as a high school English teacher, um, so much of what has happened in my life simply would not have. I mean, I, I really loved teaching high school English. I mean, I think for me sitting around with a group of 16 year olds and like talking about literature is just, is amazing. I didn't love waking up at 5.30 in the morning, but I did love, um, just like Socratic seminars, talking about Julius Caesar, talking about Invisible Man, talking about Native Son, talking about Song of Solomon, talking about, um, you know, these these books that were so transformative for me and to think about how they might be transformative for the young people that I was spending time with. I think the other thing that happened with, my time in the classroom was it, it was, I think I came into the classroom being told, you know, in a moment, I think in the mid, you know, in the 2010s-ish period, which, and it was kind of the mantra of the early aughts, which was like, education is the civil rights issue of our time. Like, if we're going to solve poverty, if we're going to solve inequality, we're going to solve education, and like, that's the way it's going to happen. And I, obviously, education is enormously important, but part of what became clear was that thinking about education in isolation was not enough and was was dishonest and disingenuous. It was because education is part of a much larger landscape of social, political, and historical realities. Health, everything All all of it, that are shaping the lives of students every day. And so for me, working in Prince George's County in a community where I had an enormous amount of undocumented students, I had an enormous amount of students whose families were impacted by mass incarceration, an enormous amount of students who um, were who lived below the poverty line. I mean, you know the things that many people experience when you're a public school teacher in a large urban district, um, and I just became increasingly interested in trying to understand the sort of larger socio-historical forces that created the conditions that my students were living in in the first place, right? And so I spent more time reading about the history of housing segregation in that area. I spent more time thinking about the specific immigration policies that were enforced in this space. I think about the history of um, you know, the uh, mass incarceration and the, and the war on drugs and the war on crime, and on, both on a local level, but also on a national level. And so I, as I began thinking more about these things, I I was kind of like, I wish I had more time and space to understand why my students lives look the way that they do when they leave this classroom right like I mean and and part of it was that I saw within my students something that I experienced in my younger self which was this internalization of the idea that there is a sort of that the conditions of the world are static right or that there is something um, part of the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it inundates you with information constantly about all the things that are wrong with your community, or all the Mm -hmm. things that are wrong with your city, all the things that are wrong with your race. And and for so much of my childhood, I felt like I didn't have the language, I didn't have the toolkit, I didn't have the framework, the understanding with which to push back against so much of the cultural pathology and social pathology that I was inundated with. And so what happens is that you begin, the, the worst version of it is that you begin to internalize some of the messages that the world tells you about yourself or that the world tells you about people who look like you. And I saw that happening with many of my students. I saw, you know, I remember always a moment where there was a, uh, one of the, a student at our school was killed in a drive-by shooting. And there was an enormous sense of grief and loss, but also this unsettling sense of like inevitability and I remember my students being like, this is, you know, not all of them, but some of them being like, this is just what happens here, Mr. Smith. Like, this is just what people do. And I saw in that moment a recognition of the things that I had been, I had once believed because of the way, of because of the messages that I had been inundated with as a kid growing up in New Orleans. A city that was, you know, I was told is the murder capital of the country. It's the, you know, incarcerates more people per capita than China, Iran, and Russia. It's the the public housing projects are representative of the sort of cultural decay of the black community, all of these things. And again, it's like, well, it's so, I, I just became increasingly clear to me how important it was to both understand the larger set of forces that created the conditions of this community in the first place, both so that I could understand it for myself, but also more effectively communicate it to my students. I think all the time in this James Baldwin essay in 1964 called A Talk to Teachers. And in it, he says that the role of the teacher is to help the black child understand that even though the world tells them over and over and over again that they are criminal, that it is in fact the society and the history that created the conditions that that black child is forced to grow up in that is in fact the real criminal.
2: Colleague Okwui said for many years. Mm-hmm. For, <laughs> my colleague Okwee for many years who's written on this, you know, the, the key line, the takeaway was, how does one think historically in the present? Mm. And that, that feels Absolutely. like such a, a visceral echo of of what you just laid out and, yeah. and what the book does. I want to keep on that note, but I also want to talk about um, I think you know it, it is tempting, and you do this so well in Crash Course and a few other sites mm-hmm. to talk about. By the way, there's an amazing um, YouTube series. Is it a podcast as well, or is it just YouTube? It's, YouTube.
1: it's just YouTube. You can listen to it as a podcast yeah. on Spotify. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. This is, you wear a lot of hats these days. So uh, you make a really excellent point throughout Crash Course and a few other places to talk about, um, there is an affirmational part of this. And actually, it gets back us gets us back to the word, and and its passage. And there's a, for me that comes together in the in the Galveston chapter um, when you actually talk about the idea that um, the necessity to learn and to relearn history to engage with it, um, it is not enough just to read that history. You talk about how abstraction, you know, the abstraction of history becomes its own kind of mm-hmm. language. And so I wondered if you could talk for a moment as we start to turn over to the audience. Um, When you say that the word is passed, that has a currency, that is a deep currency. And it seems to me that that feels like a a beautiful response to so much of the kind of the, 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 the obfuscation, the kind of the shade and the haze and the kind of inexactness of history or the willful misrepresentation of history. Um, and then I think it has as much to do with learning mm. and the way that that's kind of transmitted in a different way than we're thinking about. I was wondering if you could kind of reflect on that for a minute.
1: I guess for me, you know, the so the title comes from uh, a quote from one of the descendants at Monticello, um, and so Monticello, you know, Jefferson took copious notes, has like, you know, took notes on basically every transaction, every, it has a wide, you know, thousands and thousands of letters um, that Jefferson scholars have access to. Um, But, so there's a lot that we are able to understand Jefferson from from the archives. Um, But the only way to get a sense of the experience of the hundreds of enslaved people who once lived at Monticello was through oral histories and oral testimonies. And one of the descendants of the families, uh, of a family who was enslaved at Monticello is, was explaining this to one of the public historians at at monticello and said this is how the word is passed down which is to say like he got a story from his grandmother who got a story from his her grandfather who got a story from her ancestors and it goes on and on and that's that is how you know in the context of an institution in which black people were prevented from having access to um you know the ability to learn to read and write that is how people uh told stories and that's how traditions and lineages and um, narratives about about communities and our lives were were passed down, and so for me, you know, the title is an attempt to capture both the sense of oral history and how it is transmitted across generations, but also how it is transmitted specifically at these historical sites, right. right? Like the, the it, this book is in so many ways an homage to to docents and to tour guides and to public historians who are telling these stories in all of these spaces. You know, I I, I have so much admiration for the docent, you know, people like David at Monticello and Yvonne at Whitney Plantation and Norris with Angola and Yvonne uh, and um, Damaris in New York and all of these folks who who really have mastered an ability to sort of both meet people where they are without compromising the honesty or rigor of the the history that they're presenting. There's a sort of there's a both and in this. There's like an extension of grace and generosity, which is to say like when you show up at Monticello, is not gonna judge you for what you don't know. But there is also the expectation of, of accountability and responsibility, which is that when you're presented with this information, that might be difficult, that might be jarring, that might run counters to so much of the information and so many of the stories that you've been to- otherwise told your entire life, there's the expectation that you're gonna hold that and sit with that and they do both so well and I think that's what I tried to model the sensibilities of the book after was the sort of recognition that like I I am writing this book because I recognized for myself that I didn't understand the history of slavery in a way that was commensurate with its impact and legacy and so far from this being a polemic or far from this being a didactic text this is me saying I'm going to go on this journey I hope you reader will come along this journey with me Um, and and you know, which is different than I think a book that's attempting to say, like, this is something, you know, these are things you should have known your entire life. Um, because what I'm doing is is learning so much at each of these places. And I try to sort of model that in many ways as like the protagonist, so to speak, of, of the text. Um, and, and you know, how the word is passed is, is talking about um, just the, to your point uh, earlier, like, that it's, it's passed down in so many different ways, right what it looks like how the story is passed at um, gore Island is different than how it's passed at Blandford, which is different than how it 's passed at monticello and and all of those are part of our history that we well, have, how it's oh,
2: passed in a seminar versus a barbecue exactly. versus um, yeah. a, a government ethnographic recording it's, yeah uh, there, there's i think there's this, there's something really elegiac and and generous in in the way that you you Emphasize and draw out how sometimes it's it's actually the smallest voices that really matter in in the in the transmission of that Um, Thank you so much for sharing that um, with all of us. I'm going to turn now to uh, To both our our live studio audience and our audience who's joining us online For questions Uh, as a reminder, please come up to the microphones here and for those of you who are joining us online uh, please use either the the chat or the Q&A options Um, and then uh, our associates can pass them along.
0: Hi, I'm Serena Koenig. Um, I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the Angola prison and the gift shop. I know you gave an interview for a couple of the Harvard newsletters and I was very shocked and I went online and it, There's just no horror about it. There's a Yelp page about the the gift shop. I mean, can you talk about if you were just about your outrage and about whether they're going to change and update that horrific situation?
1: Yeah. I mean, I could have written an entire book just about... Angola, I mean so for context for folks who aren't familiar, Angola is a prison in Louisiana. It's the largest maximum security prison in the country. It's 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan. It's a place where 75% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences and it is built on top of a former plantation. And what I tell people is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would quite rightfully be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would so clearly run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. I was in Berlin in the fall, and I went to the Selschenhausen concentration camp outside of Berlin, and I had a moment where I was standing in this concentrate, former concentration camp, and you sort of look to your left, and it's crematorium. You look to your right. There's the, the empty barracks, and I just tried to do that sort of imaginative exercise to imagine what it would mean if this place had been turned into a prison and if the majority of the people in that prison were Jewish. and i couldn't even begin to i couldn't even complete the thought exercise without becoming like viscerally upset because it was so it was so absurd to imagine and yet here in the united states we have the largest maximum security prison in the country in which the vast majority of people are black men serving life sentences, many of whom work in fields for virtually no pay, while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so part of what I'm exploring when I go to Angola are what are the ways that a history of white supremacy not only enacts physical violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numbs us to certain types of violence that in another global context would so clearly be unacceptable. And to your point, what does it mean that that place has a gift shop, and in that gift shop you can buy coffee mugs and shot glasses and t-shirts and baseball caps and stuffed animals dressed in prison garb. And on um, some of the the coffee mugs and on some of the sweatshirts, there's the silhouette of a watchtower. And above and below the watchtower, it reads Angola, a gated community. As if to make a mockery of or belittle the experiences of the thousands of people who who are incarcerated there. And so for me, I'll I'll always remember, I went to uh, Angola with a guy, Norris Henderson. And Norris is somebody who was incarcerated in Angola for almost 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. And when we were leaving Angola, we were looking out into the distance. We were on this bus and we were leaving at the end of our tour. And in the distance, we saw the these men who were working in the fields while uh, one of the guards was watching over them. And they were digging their you know, shovels into the dirt and lifting them into the air, lifting their garden hose into the air, digging them into the earth, lifting their spades into the air and digging them into the earth. And... Norris turned to me and he has these calluses on his hands from like all these years spent working in the fields. He's like, Clint, I can't begin to explain to you what it felt like to work in these fields, picking cotton for seven cents an hour and wondering if these were the same fields that my ancestors picked cotton in 200 years ago. And so for the people who have been incarcerated in Angola, this history is not a metaphor. It is not an abstraction. Like they feel it in their bodies. This is something that they... They viscerally experience, and it's not to say that slavery and mass incarceration are the same thing. It's as As City uh, Hartman, who we alluded to before, talks about, what it is is the afterlife of slavery, the way that the uh, the remnants of slavery continue to shape the social, political, and economic um, infrastructure of our country. The way that the remnants and the residue of that history is is so present in that landscape, uh, and so you know it, it's a it's a strange and bizarre place and and you can go online if you google angola uh gift shop like it'll show up and a lot of those items will will still be there i don't know why they it's unclear to me what if it's a sort of because clearly it's it's been brought up to them um so i don't i'm not sure if they just don't think it's a big deal i'm not sure if they um are like too bad for you, you know. It's but but it's interesting. There's a sort of cognitive dissonance associated with it because I also got a message that said every all of the people on the board of Angola had been assigned to read my book, um, and I was like, that's great. Also, like, why is you know why is this coffee mug in your in your gift shop still? Um, so I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I know that they have been doing some sort of reassessment of their their museum, which the gift shop is a part of. Um, but I, it's unclear what that uh, new direction is is going to look like. But it's a it's a strange and unsettling place, and it's perhaps the most clear and direct manifestation of of the history of slavery of of anywhere that I've been.
2: Others, you want to go to the mic? Sure. Sure, I'll,
3: I'll to the mic. So uh, my name's Robert Holton. Uh, I'm a student with the Aspen High School, and um. What I've noticed with a lot of your work is that it seems like you have brought to light a lot more history that has to do with kind of like the institution of slavery and its importance in American history. And one of the things I've noticed, and you've also said that, you know, there was kind of this narrative pushed when you were a kid in school that, you know, that there wasn't really a lot of talk about how the institution of slavery had a lot of negative externalities and negative consequences in Amer- American society and what i was wondering is i kind of noticed my sophomore year in u.s history that it kind of seems like it may have gone the other way where not necessarily that there was an over emphasis on the faults of american history just that or an exaggeration kind of just more so that it seems like we were learning more about the faults of american history than the triumphs of american history like you know that america is a country of oppression and that america is a country of racism and sexism and income inequality and stuff like that but do you think that as it as like a very important member in the historic society of america would you say that it's important to have education in public schools where i i've noticed it seems like across a theme across public schools in america is that's the same way that there's to focusing more on the faults of American society, would you say that there needs to be a balance of learning about America's triumphs and America's faults? You know, not so much an emphasis, an exaggeration like the 1776 project, but you know, to that end, not a, an over exaggeration to the other end like the 1619 project. What, what would you say?
1: I appreciate the question. I think that for me, Uh, Part of what we're experiencing is that for hundreds of years, a story about America has been told that has been singularly triumphant and has not accounted for who has that triumph come at the expense of. And so I think about Jeff, part of the reason I started the book with Monticello is because I think Jefferson in so many ways is a great Um, sort of personification of the larger American project, which is to say America is a place that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable opportunities for millions of people across generations in ways that their ancestors could have never imagined. It has also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of America. It's not one over here and one over there, it's that they are both deeply entangled in one another. And so Jefferson is someone, when we think about Jefferson, He is someone who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He is someone who wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind, said the slave was incapable of love. The slave was incapable of possessing or sustaining complex emotion. What about Phyllis Wheatley, who's the first published African-American poet in the history of this country, that her work, he said that her work was quote, below the dignity of criticism, that it wasn't even worth engaging with because he didn't believe that black people had the emotional capacity with which to create art. He said that love is the ostrum of the poet, which is to say that in order to create art, in order to create poetry, one has to experience the sort of emotional texture of love and he didn't believe that black people had the ability to do so, so black people thus couldn't create art. And so when we think about that, I think about how those are parts of Jefferson's story that growing up I was never told. And I think about how Jefferson is so many, in so many ways, again, a microcosm for the story of America in which we for so long were so committed to the idea of American exceptionalism that we suppress any stories that make us look unexceptional. So for me, it's not about balance necessarily as much as it's about honesty, right? Like I don't know what it means to have an honest conversation about who Thomas Jefferson was if we're not going to acknowledge that Jefferson the scholar, Jefferson the statesman, Jefferson the president, Jefferson the governor, Jefferson the uh, philosopher is inextricably linked to. And those parts of his identity are only made possible because of the fact that he owned hundreds of enslaved people who made those other parts of his life possible. So I think for me, it's not a matter of like, are we telling a triumphant story of America or are we telling a story about uh, the the multitude of America's sins? To my mind, it is a story that is, uh, you tell a story that is reflective of the complexities and multiplicities of the American story, right? One that has provided, again, like a lot of opportunity for many people, but that in which that opportunity has often come at the expense, the direct expense of other people. And so, you know, I was, I had a poem in the 1619 Project. Um, I think the 1619 Project is like an invaluable resource that in, unfortunately has been turned into a caricature of itself um, in an effort to sort of distort you know, the the actual like empiric, rigorous empirical nature of like what it's unearthing. And so, you know, I, I think what we're experiencing right now is that people are attempting to tell a fuller, more honest, more complicated, more nuanced story of America, and that can be hard and unsettling for a lot of people to hear because it doesn't line up with the story that they grew up with. Um, and I think, you know, I can't speak to the specifics of like what's happening in your classroom or your teacher's pedagogy necessarily, but but I do think that it is important that there is enough, you know, the pendulum sometimes is like swings one way and then swings another way until it finds a sort of equilibrium and not necessarily, again, an equilibrium that is reflective of a like, we have to tell both sides but a, one that is a reflection of the, sort of the, the totality of the American story. Because what's true is that so many perspectives and so many stories and so many narratives have just not been included in the story we tell about America for so long. I mean, I learned about manifest destiny as a singular good, like from sea to shining sea, manifest destiny, look what America did. And no one ever talked about the millions of indigenous people who were killed as in order to create the space for that land, you talked about the the new you know the the New Deal. I learned about the New Deal as if it was the sort of single greatest piece of policy that ever happened in the twentieth century, and in many ways, for many people, it was. But the New Deal also specifically and intentionally prevented black people from having access to the, uh, the benefits that it afforded to millions of white people. So black people didn't have access to social security, minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, healthcare, the GI Bill. And so you give the single greatest catalyst of wealth to one group of people, and you very intentionally don't give it to another group of people. And then people wanna act surprised generations later when there are disparate outcomes along the lines with it, that these resources were allotted. And so, when, if you're like gonna talk about the New Deal, for me, it's not a like, are we gonna talk about the the triumphs of the New Deal and the um and the you know the inequalities or the 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 terribleness of the New Deal, it's like we just have to talk about what it actually was, right? Because in order to understand what it actually in order to understand its implications, we have to understand the way that public the history of public policy in this country was created. And the New Deal is just one example of, you know, an endless examples of things that, you know, for me, I think about how I was taught in a way that was singularly triumphant, that didn't account for the, the more complex realities uh, that have, in an enormous way, shaped what the, the landscape of inequality looks like in this country. To cite someone we both
3: Thank love. You.
2: To cite someone we both admire, um, how, how, does one, how do you hold both things in your hands at the same time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Is there, do we have a, a question? Yep,
0: we have one more from the live stream audience. Oh, wonderful. Um, so when you were reaching out to interview people, did you come across anyone who was defensive and how did you put them at ease to talk with you?
1: There were a lot of defensive people. Um, <laughs> you don't really like show up to the Confederate veteran celebration <laughs> and, and as, a, as a black guy and everybody's like, what's up, you know? like. Um, you know, for me, it was, I wasn't interested in, like, trying to be antagonistic toward anyone or trying to do a sort of gotcha. Um, I was just curious, right? And I approached every person that I met with a with a genuine sense of curiosity um, and a genuine desire to understand what they believe, right? So if I had gone to the Sons of Confederate Veterans event and tried to do a sort of, like, you know, daily show gotcha, like just try to make people look look silly. Um or like, you know, I they're standing there saying the you know, slavery, you know, slavery had nothing to do with the uh with the Civil War. And if I'm just gonna stand there and be like, well, in the Declarations of the Confederate secession in 1861, Mississippi said, it's that's not the kind of dialogue I was interested in creating. If I wanted somebody to tell me the truth, then I had to create a space in which they felt like they could Be honest and that they weren't going to be attacked and and i wasn't interested in in attacking them even in the book it's like part of what i try to do is step back myself and let their their claims sit alongside the the primary source documents right so if you're going to say this i'm also going to show you what uh, Alexander Stevens, the Vice presidency or the Vice President of the Confederacy, uh, said about you know how the no other great no other nation on earth had been created for the specific purpose of um, or had been created upon this great principle and that principle is that the that the white man is inherently superior to the black man and that every white person has the uh, inherent right to own enslaved people in perpetuity, um, or that in 1861, as I mentioned in the Declaration's Confederate Secession, a state like Mississippi says our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. Right, so they were not vague about why they were seceding from the Union, about why and why the war would be fought. They were quite quite clear about it. But and this kind of goes back to you know what we were saying before. But for many people, history is not about the primary source documents or empirical evidence. It's about a story that they're told and a story that they want to hold on to. And, you know, a, a desire to, a recognition that the histories that they carry are inextricably linked to the relationships they have with people they love and communities they value and communities that create, you know, that served as the catalyst to the to the people they are. Um, so, you know, I, I just approached it with the, the, the curiosity that is, I think, genuine to, to who I am as a person. Um, and, you know, I, I also did not operate as if I was a, a neutral party necessarily, right? I It was quite clear about where I stood on on many of these issues, but I think that what I tried to do was share that in a way that was not necessarily, again, antagonistic, but but honest, you know? So when I'm standing, uh, with these sons Confederate veterans at Blanford, you know, and they're telling me what this land means to them and how important it is to them. Right. I'm honest, and I say, you know, it's so fascinating to hear you say that because for me, when I stand here, all I think about are people who fought a war to keep my ancestors enslaved, and I don't know that those are conversations that they've you know encountered before, or if they've you've been been challenged or or had those sorts of perspectives um, uh, presented to them, but. You know, I, I tried to be honest, I tried to be curious, and I tried to extend the sort of generosity to someone that I would hope would be extended to me. Do we have, is there one more question? You're just oh,
2: yeah, holding one. guard. Yes. If, if it's succinct, we'll jump right in, sure. Oh, um, I just wanted to do if you could expand on the, um, at the beginning of the talk, when you were talking about the Confederate cemetery, you talked about truth versus, um, oh shoot, now I've forgotten, truth versus loyalty. Mm-hmm. And if if you might just expand briefly on that to help us
0: understand what you were sharing.
1: Yeah, so so for example, um, Jeff is a guy who I had a conversation with when I was at the Blanford Cemetery. And when I spoke to, talking to Jeff, Jeff was telling me about how when he was a kid, his grandfather used to bring him to the cemetery and they would say that this, gazebo at the center of the cemetery this beautiful enormous white gazebo and they would sit there and his grandfather would sing him the old dixie song and they would watch the deer sort of scamper out of the forest as the sun began to set and they would you know the sun would you know turn from blue to purple to orange to pink and they would watch the fireflies sort of dance from one tombstone to the next and uh, his grandfather would tell him these stories of the men who were buried in the cemetery and how brave they were and how Loyal they were, and how they fought a war not because they wanted to perpetuate human slavery, but because they wanted to protect their families, because they believed in the South, because the war, the, the the North was like an invasive army that was trying to come and um, you know strip away the sovereignty they had as as individual states. And now Jeff talks was telling me about how he brings his own granddaughters to Blandford and shares with them the same stories that his grandfather once shared with him and sings the same songs that his grandfather once shared with him. And so if I'm gonna to go to Jeff and I say, Jeff, you know, I hear you, but that's not true, right? Like here's Alexander Stevens, here's the Declaration of Confederate Session, here's the Crittenden Amendment, here's the, the copious amount of contemporaneous evidence that exists that makes very clear why the Confederacy was seceding from the Union and why the Civil War was gonna be fought. But if Jeff is to accept that information, then he would have to accept that his grandfather was lying to him. And if he has to accept that his grandfather was lying to him, it threatens to disintegrate the foundation upon which their relationship was built. If that relationship begins to, to crumble and disintegrate, then Jeff also is going to experience a sort of existential crisis because so much of how, who Jeff understands himself to be is tied to the stories that his grandfather and that his community and that the people in his life, the people that he loves, told him. And so if you are asking somebody to accept that the stories that the people that they love most in the world are untrue, it is not only a sort of like inconvenient need to reassess history, it is like a threat to their very sense of self. And I think that's part of what we see now is like a contemporary manifestation of that with the critical race theory boogerman, right? Where it's like, part of what's happened over the last 10 years, we just commemorated the, the death of Trayvon Martin, um, the 10-year de- anniversary of his death, which is the sort of unofficial beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. What has happened over the last 10 years is that you have had millions of people, because of the space that activists and organizers on the ground in these different cities across the country have opened up, in many ways similar to the way that activists and organizers opened up space in the civil rights movement, for writers and journalists and scholars and artists and filmmakers and all sorts of people like myself to come in and, and present a newer, not even a newer, a more honest, robust, rigorous history of this country that accounts for the multitude of perspectives that haven't always been included. So you have millions of people who now understand racism, not just as an interpersonal phenomenon, but as a systemic one, as a structural one, as a sociological one. And as a result, you have a there's been a profound shift not everywhere but in many places a profound shift in public consciousness in which many people are now telling many teachers are now teaching these stories that before previously you know in my childhood and in many of our childhoods were never taught and so Now you have another group of people who see this happening and their sense of who they believe themselves to be is deeply tied to the previous story of America that was being told. And so if you have millions of people who are now telling a different story about this country, a more honest, a more expansive story of this country, then you have millions of other people who are experiencing that same sort of existential threat because who they understand themselves to be is inextricably linked to the sort of two-dimensional story of triumph of America and how they situate themselves uh, in the landscape of this country is, is tethered to a set of stories that either aren't true or are more complicated and more nuanced than they've been presented as. So you have people in a state-sanctioned effort who are attempting through state legislatures across the country through book bannings in different um, school boards across the country who are attempting to prevent teachers from teaching the very history that explains why this country looks the way that it does today. And so when we talk about like truth versus loyalty, I think that's the tension that many people are experiencing. It's like a, uh, you know, with the son's Confederate veterans, it's like am I going to be loyal to my family? Am I going to be loyal to the stories that they were telling me? Yeah. Or am I going to accept this new information that runs counter to the stories that have shaped who I am? And today, it's a similar thing where it's like, am I going to accept the reality that the material resources I have, the opportunities I have, the the spaces I occupy, are not singularly because I deserve to be in them or because I deserve to have them, but are in fact a result of like uh, centuries of compounding public policy decisions that have created certain sets of opportunities for others at the expense of other people. And so, you know, I think that's a uh, that's a real tension, and that's kind of at the heart of the, the cultural and history wars that we're um, wading our way through today. Uh,
2: that's a wonderful note to sort of put a, put a bow on all of this, and to say that in, in, in truly eloquent prose, and with so much grace with all of your subjects and interlocutors, your book, I think, speaks to, exactly to the, the precarity and the humanity of precisely that kind of negotiation. And it feels as much a call to arms, right? It's it's a call to action um, for honoring exactly that kind of word. So, Clint Smith, thank you so very much. Please join me thank in you. welcoming you. Thank you all. Thank you for coming back to Aspen.
0: Clint Smith's latest book is How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic and a poet and scholar. He has a PhD in education and previously taught high school English. His poetry collection, Counting Descent* won the 2017 Literary Award for Best Poetry Book from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. James Merle Thomas is a scholar and curator and professor of art history at the Tyler School of Art and Architecture at Temple University. He's the director of the Resnick Center for Herbert Bayer Studies at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by Aspen Words and produced by Natalie Jones at me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Tricia Johnson.